trigger warning. This podcast discusses themes centered around emotional, physical, and sexual violence. While the stories of the survivors are meant to be inspiring and informative, listener discretion is advised. If you are struggling with any of the aforementioned issues, links to resources can be found in the show notes of today's episode. You know, I experienced several instances of sexual abuse as a child and then grew up to normalize domestic abuse, you know, normalize it to the point of, you know, I didn't realize that I could just leave the relationship. I thought I could just break up with him by dying. Hi, survivors. I'm Tara Newell. And I'm Collier Landry. And this is the Survivor Squad podcast. Yes, I'm so excited. I'm always excited. You're always excited. (laughs) What are you talking about? I'm always excited for everyone's episode. But today I'm really excited because I think I fangirled a little bit. You did just a little bit, just (laughs) a little bit. But hey, she's super cool, right? Yes. No. And I love her sharing her story, sharing her trauma. And I think that it's amazing because when someone has as big as a platform as she does, I think it's really incredible to share and be vulnerable. Absolutely. And I think that's, you know, as we've talked about many, many times on and off this program, vulnerability is a real key to connect with audiences, but also just like the authenticity of being who you are. You know, there's no reason to be prevaricative about any of it when it comes to your own personal trauma. I mean, that's just my opinion. Prevaricated, like barricades? (laughs) Prevaricative, like a va. So prevaricative, my word of the day, (laughs) (laughs) means to be evasive. Uh, with your, when people are trying to talk to you about certain things and you're being prevaricated. My father was extremely good at being prevaricated as are like all narcissists and, and manipulators. But, uh, yeah, being prevaricative is, is, is being evasive with your words and not answering the questions, dancing around the subject, but in a very evasive manner. There you go. So that's, uh, you know, that isn't the official Webster's dictionary version. That's just my version, but yeah, that's, that is but, well, uh, I'm here for your version. <laughs> I'm so glad everyone is. Everyone's expanding their vocabulary on the program, which makes me so happy. You have no idea. <laughs> yes. Well, I think it's great to expand your mind, expand your brain. And, you know, you know a lot more vocabulary than I do. And I know a lot more probably about dogs. That is, that is, I don't know about the vocabulary part, but for sure about the dog part. Uh, yes. Tara is a dog and and speaking of dogs we even got to see margaret's uh chihuahua she's a chihuahua person just like me yes so if you guys are watching on youtube you get to yes. see the little chihuahua yeah and for those of you that are are not watching on youtube we have a youtube channel it is the survivor squad pod on youtube check it out i have a youtube channel too where i put the episodes where you guys can check out and follow us there follow us everywhere we're working really hard to create this content for you guys but we have our first celebrity guest, and who is it? Margaret Cho. Margaret Cho, who I just love. So uh, let's get into it. Yes, let's get into it. Yeah, she's really, she's the best. 
Where did oh. you get her, if you don't mind me asking? She's from the Michelson's Found Animals Rescue. They do a lot of rescue and out of shelters in Culver City. Okay. And okay. it's, uh, they, I think they change it to found animals now, but it's, it's like a big, like old school, like shelter rescue, but she was rescued with her entire litter. Her, I think her mom was rescued when she was pregnant, four puppies. And then they're all like, they all look exactly like her. They all have the same kind of ears, but they all have different coloring. So one is kind of caramel color. Her other, her twin sister's white with the black nose. And then she has sort of a, a black and tan other brother. It's very cute. Oh, I love, I love her. We yeah, love the she's the best. <laughs> the best. The best. And Chihuahuas are oh oh oh, oh that's a white Tara. Yeah, the white Tara. Is that done by Master Romeo Shrestha? No, it was. I actually stole it from. <laughs> I didn't steal it. I purchased it, but I I brought it back illegally from Kathmandu because there was a general strike, so you couldn't buy anything and this was in the year 2001 and the royal family had been assassinated and they had called a general strike which was like not leaving you couldn't like leave with anything or you can buy anything everything had to sort of be shut down and uh, i embezzled it out of the country i stole it it was my it's my one trafficking not drug not, not drug trafficking paint art thief Art thing. I love it. <laughs> I'm like, well, you need to bring back that energy, you know? Well, I was really nervous, but I've never really, I'm not, not good criminal, but get too, get too <laughs> nervous. So I was definitely like a dog shaking and salivating. <laughs> you were on the plane just like, huh? <laughs> licking, licking my chops, swallowing a lot of air, but... Yeah, I did. I have two of them. They're they're very very important to me. But yeah, they're they're great. Oh, I love it. Yeah, the Tonkas are amazing. Yeah, Tonkas are are so incredible. So I have quite a few of them. I always thought I would get a Tonka tattoo, but the, this is just so painful. Too many <laughs> to draw. Forget it. See, I like tattoos. I'm the type of person I'll lay there and take a nap and be like, mm -hmm. oh, this is so nice. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think it's. I, I mostly tattooed my whole body. I was like that for most of the time I was tattooing. But then when I hit my 40s, your body figures out, oh, this is actually not really an injury that I need to create endorphins for. It's something you're doing on purpose. And so your okay. body sort of gets used to the idea that you're going to get tattooed. Because I have my stomach tattooed. I have my back okay. tattooed. Like my butt is tattooed. So my kneecaps are tattooed. So like it's like the very, whole it, ass or just yeah, like the whole ass, the whole okay. ass, not the oh, wow. whole, not the asshole. <laughs> but, I'm but glad we have cheeks. standards. We've, we've drawn lines. Yeah. But the butt cheeks. Oh, nice. Yeah. Yeah. I just I got a good it. mesh. Yeah. Oh, nice. Beautiful. Yeah. Which Tara tells me it. is very fitting. Yes. Because yes. Uh, do you know Collier's story? No, I don't. Okay, so he's a true crime survivor as well. He, mm -hmm. His mom was murdered. He overheard his mom get murdered at the age 11. And By then, my father. Yes. Mm -hmm. And then 12 years old, you know your story. But 
Yeah. Yeah. So basically, my father murdered my mother when I was 11. And mm -hmm. I, it was on New Year's Eve. And I heard it happen. And no one believed me except for one detective. And over the course of 25 days, myself and this detective solved my mother's murder. And they dug her body up underneath the house mm -hmm. in another state where my mm -hmm. father had buried her under the basement. I actually, if, if yeah, obviously you're in the film business, just like me, you know, do you know Barbara Koppel? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah. So she directed a film about me called A Murderer in Mansfield. We did it together a couple of years okay. ago. Okay. Okay. Yeah. 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 Wow. So. Wow. Well, yeah, you... incredible survival. Both of you. Thank you. Yeah. That's incredible. Thank you. Thank you. Well, we're excited to get to know you more and your trauma. Yes. <laughs> you know. That good stuff. <laughs> yes. Well, I think like my trauma story, it's almost as if like when you grow up conditioned to maybe like consistent degrees of abuse, that it is something that you just become used to. It is a kind of conditioning response. You just get used to that. And so abuse is normal. Yeah. You know, that... You know, I experienced several instances of sexual abuse as a child and then grew up to normalize domestic abuse, you know, normalize it to the point of, you know, I didn't realize that I could just leave the relationship. I thought I could just break up with him by dying. And that was like <laughs> not the solution either. <laughs> like, oh. <laughs> I'll just just keep taking drugs and maybe I'll just die. And that that seemed like the right avenue. Unfortunately, um, I just didn't have a sense of, oh, I could get out of this. And so it's one of the reasons why I really I love Tonkas. I love Buddhism. I'm actually I'm not a Buddhist, but I have a very strong meditation practice. There are things that I do now that are really about finding that space of healing so for me, I think it wasn't just one traumatic event. It's a lifetime of normalizing trauma to the yeah. point of where you're just numb to it or you're used to making yourself numb. Well, it's like when you grow up in that, your nervous system's used to that. So your nervous system is like around a toxic person and you're like, oh, this is family. This is safe to me, even though right. it's not safe, you know? Mm-hmm. Mm -hmm. And I think it's interesting. I was reading up that you were molested as a child for so many years. And I actually was molested as a child as well. Mm -hmm. And I'm curious to know if your memories kind of popped up later in life or if they kind of stuck with you all throughout life. I think they really did stick with me all throughout my life. But, you know, in a sense, a lot of that culture of sexualizing children was normal because I grew up in the 70s and the 80s where you're having there's like films like Tess which was winning Academy yeah. Awards which was about a 16 year old girl having relationships with men but it was also this thing of like oh this is totally normal and this is winning awards and of course Roman Polanski we all know what yes. is happening with him but I mean it's like you had you know, nothing be comes between me and my Calvins, which I think is really em em emblematic of the time. And, and, you know, something that like, I'm the same age as Brooke Shields. I'm actually a huge fan of hers. I think she's an incredible survivor as well. But, you know, um, we look to abuse as a kind of 
not only is it normal to be abused, but it's actually, you know, something that is almost status. Like you were gaining status amongst adults, like you were gaining some kind of agency within adulthood. If you were not that you kids can allow that to happen, but if it happened to you. So there was a culture of abuse happening globally that I think we're just starting now to unpack. What has it been like going through that journey and being in the public eye? Well, it's interesting because you experience a lot of other people talking about it. And and then now there's so much more of a sense of like, okay, we have to offer like a trigger warning before we discuss it so that we don't trigger other people, which I think is really great. But, um, you know, that's something new. And I think it's like the language around abuse is like now it's become something that we can really talk about in a way that is healing. And so, and being in the public eye to me, it's, it's also like you can be of service by discussing it. Like you can be of service yeah. by telling your truth. And I think, you know, that to me is the best part of being able to survive is to be able to connect with other people who have experienced different kinds of trauma, different kinds of abuse and come out the other side better, better equipped to handle life, which I think is really great. I agree. I think that's great. Absolutely. And you know, it's interesting when you said the trigger warning, you know, there's, that seems to be sort of amongst survivors. Tyra and I were discussing this the other week. Some people are like, well, that's, that's really not, that's really not, helpful for your growth to give someone a trigger warning. It's actually impeding your growth. And I, and both Tara and I sort of disagree with that, but I think that's sort of like an old school mentality of, you know, for me, I I share a lot of my story on TikTok, right? And I have Mm -hmm. another podcast that I do called moving past murder. All of it is me sharing this story. And I have people that will often, you know, they'll, they'll just excoriate me being like, well, why don't you just get over it? Why don't you do this? And I'm like, that's not what this is about. What it's about is that my mother was the most important person in my life. I sought justice for her, got that justice. My father is still incarcerated to this day. And Mm -hmm. I am able to, by me sharing this story of going through all this horrific stuff, because I was abandoned because of, interestingly enough, sexual abuse. I was abandoned by both sides of my family because my father, who was a doctor under the guise of giving my cousins physicals, had molested my two cousins on my mother's side. So they didn't want anything to do with me. So I was remanded to the foster care system and orphaned. You know, everybody would say, well, why don't you just get over it? Why are you talking about it? Because you're not getting over it. It's like, no, it's empowering because not only can somebody learn, can I talk about it and heal myself, but other people can learn. Mm -hmm. I mean, that ultimately is what we're offering the world, right? Yeah. Yeah. You're teaching from your own experience, from dealing with this incredible suffering. It's something that we can... um, actually used to i think be able to help others i think it's it's not a, a an, it doesn't impede other people's healing and there's no way to just get over it and move on yeah you know there's a way to actually just take your suffering and use it as a a, a way to show others a light you know and i think that's really powerful yeah I agree. And I think when I shared my story as well, I didn't realize how many people reach out and are like, I'm not alone right now. And 
it's so important to know that this is something that we can talk about and that it's not so scary or shameful anymore. Right, right. It's really, I think, it also wakes you up to the fact that there are predators out there that you wouldn't necessarily recognize offhand, that it's something like that I actually got from your story and listening to your mom tell it. It was so much about like, I was in that situation where I was in a relationship with a man who, this was my last abusive relationship. And I just didn't really, I I didn't see the signs, but uh, he was actually unhoused. He just kind of moved in because he looked right, because he said the right things. And I kind of had this idea, oh, he must be okay because he was kind of coming into my life under the guise of friendship and other friends knew him. And I thought, oh, he must be vetted because they know him. But they didn't know that he was unhoused. They didn't know that he was just like this um, really coercively controlling, abusive person. Also, coercive control is something that I think is a new idea of talking about abuse because that is so prevalent and something that you don't even recognize. Like he was doing just like with your mom, really trying to uh, isolate me from all of my friends and my family, you know, making sure that I didn't have any contact with other people. Like he would be getting vicious fights with friends of mine so that I wouldn't have anybody to turn to but him. And so this was like a huge problem, that and financial abuse and all of this stuff. But it's so much in the the guise of like romance that you're just unaware of what's going on. So coercive control, I think, is something that we're just starting to learn is, is a very, very big part of abuse. Yes. And now it's a standalone law in California by the mm-hmm. way, mm-hmm. Uh, That's so great. because yes, yeah, Senator Rubio helped us get that into effect. So now if you're in that situation in California, you can use that law to help get a restraining order and whatnot. So yes. I, I love that you're talking about coercive control because it's so important to talk about. And it's like people need to understand that it's not like you get into the situation, situation so easy. It's mm-hmm. like you're groomed and you're conditioned to be with them and yes. think that this person is like the one and only. Right. And the problem is, is that we don't know how sick it is because you're only with one other person. So then you're almost in a situation where you're both under the same mental illness. You're being held hostage by their mental illness. The way that I got out of that relationship is my friends pretty much kidnapped me. I I was like taken to a birthday party that I did not consent to. <laughs> I, was, <laughs> I, I was taken by force to a birthday party, which turned out to be my intervention. And they took okay. me wow. to a rehab center where I lived for a year and a half because I couldn't get him out of my house. Like he also demanded squatters rights at my home. Yeah, and then of course he the, did. Yeah, the sheriff came to get him out and... Um, They had kept coming in and changing the locks in the house and he wouldn't leave. And finally, the sheriffs came guns drawn in the house and they the house is empty. But he had dressed a mannequin with all of my clothes and my wig in the bed. And they thought, like, what is going on? What is happening? And they were like, guns drawn, looking at this like figure in the bed, like, 
who is that? <laughs> like, this is so weird because they've been like screaming and knocking. And um, so they still haven't found him. I could never file a restraining order. The restraining order I tried to file, but they could never serve him. So I could never actually get one. But he's out there somewhere. So it's a very, just a very, you don't know how sick people are. Yeah. Yeah. Is this the person that you talked about on the First Degree podcast? No, no. This is somebody <laughs> <laughs> I mean, there's so many. That's the thing is that when you grow up with like thinking like, oh, this is fine. Also, like, I think just TV and movies and romantic stories have done such a number on us. They have normalized sure. stalking. Like every like romance. Yeah hero like a male lead has always been like stalking a woman if she's not interested we'll just keep on stalking her until she becomes interested and then then you start to like if you love movies like i love movies and i love tv shows and all of that stuff i love stories and then you just get conditioned to these like stories that are really about coercive control and you kind of romanticize that and that's just not it's not the way to grow up and so i have to sort of re learn all these things about romance about love and about what the truth of it is yeah well i honestly i love the last movie that i saw that you were in it's not the last one that you were in but i was just watching friendsgiving the other day oh yeah and (laughs) i was like it's funny because collier also videotaped so in that their song was in the movie over and over again Mm -hmm. and it was just like all these third degrees of separation i've also worked with malan malan ackerman before as well so it's just like third degrees of separation but i thought that you know i thought that that movie was great because it didn't show like the toxicness it showed like there was you know hope and you shouldn't get into these toxic situations and so in recovering. And I just think that, you know, movies are great, but I see there's a transition lately. Mm -hmm. Do you see the transition as well? Definitely. That there's more of a conscious way to talk about relationship and romance that isn't about abuse, that doesn't normalize things like stalking, that doesn't normalize any kind of like coercive control or even abuse in language, verbal abuse, all these things. Like we're now starting to figure out that a lot of romance that we've been given all this time that we've been fed through fairy tales and everything. It's really, it's really wrong. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, absolutely. It's interesting. So by the way, I just have to laugh because Tara said I videotaped something. <laughs> Tara, that's an anachronistic saying. We don't oh, use sorry. tape anymore. <laughs> <laughs> He's a DP. <laughs> this is funny. I um, just say lots of things that don't make sense to y'all. <laughs> like I make up my own words. <laughs> I'm like, do I have a video camcorder here? I don't know. No, what, I, what, what I want, I'm sure I probably do. I have an eight millimeter downstairs. So Margaret, you grew up in in the Bay Area, right? Yes, San Francisco. So you're kind of sort of part, like coming out of that like whole beatnik generation. Yes, and hippies yeah. and like the all hate, that, the yeah, hate and all of that, yeah, yeah. I guess so. Leading into this sort of you know control, obviously we've seen 
you know, we've seen a sort of regression, obviously, recently, Mm -hmm. especially like women's rights and now LGBTQ rights. So like what's going on? You know, that whole kerfuffle that happened in Ohio. I was telling this to Tara yesterday. There was that church where the QAnon guys go Mm -hmm. with the guns or whatever. Mm -hmm. Like my father used to abuse me growing up saying, you know, not to be use a derogatory word, but told me that my mother was making me into a faggot. Right. And I'm Mm -hmm. not a homosexual, but I grew up very confused. I grew up in the middle of Ohio. Right. Mm -hmm. I grew up very confused. I remember my mother's best friend said, I want to take you to a church, a Unitarian Universalist church where you're going to meet people who are gay and who have families. And and you're going to see that this like this is because somebody wrote an article about me and called me effeminate. And I was like, why did they say I was effeminate? What does this even mean? And mm-hmm. I remember her taking me to that church to introduce me to, because it's, it's outside of Columbus, which they call the, you know, affectionately the San Francisco, of the Midwest. Right. Mm-hmm. And I remember going there and just experiencing this whole like embracing, loving community of, of like gay couples that had kids. And you're talking about like, this is like late nineties in Ohio. Mm-hmm. And, like this was very, prog- very progressive. And I was like, this yeah. is so cool. This mm-hmm. is so cool. And I remember even friends who had ventured out to the West coast and they were like, Oh my God. San Francisco is amazing because you you can't smoke indoors, so you so you don't have to worry about cigarettes because you're <laughs> asthmatic. And I was like, that sounds incredible. Wow. Oh what do you think is what do you think is driving this sort of like this sort of regression? Is it a you know I know the the default is everybody blames it on Trump, but it's so much more than that, right? Not to get into politics, mm-hmm. but what do you think drives this? Is it still not only just a, a miss? Is it a misunderstanding or is it just this genuine anger? Is this this angst of, of younger men? What what do you think it is? I think it's a number of things, but I, I think that mainly it's social social media drives a lot of it because a lot of times these communities and the algorithms in social media will only show you things that you've seen and liked before. So then you are stuck in an echo chamber, no matter what platform it is, but you're stuck in the algorithm of everything that you like is fed back to you. And you start to believe that the world is only that. And then all of your opinions are somehow justified, whether that's opinions about women, opinions about other races, other gender, sexuality, all of these things that make us who we are, you're... uh, thoughts are reinforced. And so a lot of times that can result in anger. It can result in like blaming the other, whoever the other is. Yeah. Also, I just, this is so ridiculous, but I'm a gamer now. And I just, I got a VR headset. And I, I've been gaming and I really notice how it, it, the violent games are really, fun but at the same time it makes it very normal to shoot people that you are in the game like you are so normal like like again it's like a normalizing abuse like you normalize the feeling of shooting things shooting people and sort of being in these violent situations not to say that i don't think games are causing it but also the immersion of like social media, your algorithm, and then being in a VR headset outside of life and then not connecting with others on a real level outside of the games, outside of the 
social media platform, whatever, I think is causing a kind of, I think, a, a misguided understanding of what the world actually is. And so that yeah. those things, like it's a disconnection. It's also your own opinions being given back to you. So I always try to like step outside of my own like comfort zone in terms of like algorithms. Like I'll go on different areas of my platform that I don't necessarily agree with, but I just want to see what's going on and I want to listen. So that is helpful, but it's also, you, you also see how bad it is, which is scary too. You know, yeah. as a queer person, as I am, you know, I'm bisexual, I'm Asian American, my family are immigrants, I'm a feminist. There's a lot of things that I see that are really scary for somebody like me. Yeah. Wow. And then I think, you know, that you have the pandemic that exacerbated all this. You know, we talk about the chorus of control and narcissism. You know, when you're cooped up with someone yeah. <laughs> that you have, or, you know, you have like, I just think about myself as a child in foster care, right? Mm -hmm. Where my interactions were really limited because I was the mm -hmm. key witness against my father for, so for a period of six months, I was under a bit of like isolation. I wasn't allowed to watch television. I wasn't allowed to read the newspaper. I wasn't really mm -hmm. allowed to do much of anything other than go to school. And, you know, it, it, I think about that now, you, you know, my reprieve, even in catching my father was I communicated with the police department while I was still living with him while I was at school, <laughs> I was collecting mm -hmm. evidence and going to school and meeting with detectives to say, this is what I found and ultimately found this house. But, mm -hmm. you know, I think about like, I had that safety zone. You had kids that for almost two years were not able to have that safety zone or people in relationships couldn't go to work, couldn't go to the gym and get away from that abusive partner. And then I right. think, you know, it's exactly, you end up in that, like you said, that echo chamber. Mm -hmm. And then all these things are brought to light. And I just, I think, this is all going to play out for years. Right. You, you, right. Yeah. I, I mean, I think that's got to be really hard. You know, people who are stuck with their abusive partners or parents during the pandemic, it's just, you, you can't even imagine the damage that that's wrought, you know, kind of being isolated with your abuser for that long. You know, yeah. it's very, it, it, it's, it's real. I think we're just only starting to understand how difficult that is like now. Yeah. Well, I just think it's interesting that during this time of COVID, too, that it's made us more aware of these issues as well. And mm -hmm. that's actually when I like noticed you speaking out more, too, Margaret, mm -hmm. was like, oh, wow, this is like a huge thing. Like, I grew up in Irvine, so mm -hmm. it's, you know, a good amount of Asian culture there. Mm -hmm. And I experience where like some of my neighbors didn't like me because I was white and stuff but I never even thought of what they went through to have to feel that mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. you know have you experienced any sort well I'm sure you have but have you experienced any sort of race racist stuff in the industry well I think what happens for Asian Americans and particularly me in my industry it's that the um, it's the non-inclusion it's the invisibility okay. and not being able to comprehend that maybe one day there will be more asian american representation in entertainment now there's more which is great and it's really exciting i think there's uh, uh, 
an understanding that we need more diversity in storytelling and racial diversity is a very big part of that. There still needs to be more, but I think initially like to see what's going on has been really exciting. But I started stand-up comedy in 1984 where there was no representation of Asian Americans anywhere. And since I'm not, I can't, I'm not a martial artist. I've never, I can't, I can't break boards with anything. I can't, I, I, I'm like, you know, really not like that. So I'm very, uh, I, I'm very grateful for the way things have turned out. But when I first started doing stand-up comedy, I didn't have headshots, you know, to take, to take around to the clubs to put my photo up. So the, one of the clubs that I was going to do a show, it was actually a restaurant. They had used a drawing of a, a railroad worker from the 1800s with like buck teeth and like a long braid. A railroad, they use a, a racial caricature from the 1800s to promote my appearance. Like the, the incredible, I, I, I mean, the racism behind it is almost, it's, it's Victorian almost. It's actually like, <laughs> unbelievable like a racial caricature a racist caricature from the 1800s to promote my appearance said margaret cho proof that the chinese are no laughing matter which also semantically is wrong because it should be a laughing matter if i'm like it's such a very there's so many layers of problems (laughs) when we like go into that i mean i can't believe it and so i i took that i took it off of the the billboard thing and i brought it into the office and i was like I don't think that you should put this up there. And I was like 14 years old also. That was the other thing. I was a really I was young. Say, you had to be really young. <laughs> I was really, really young. And so to have that kind of metal to be able to say this is wrong, but yeah, it was so in- egregiously wrong that it, it really almost was really funny because it was just this ridiculous thing of like, I don't think this is a good thing to use. But they just didn't understand. And so the the racism that I've experienced throughout my career has been pretty far reaching and really interesting. But most of it boils down to invisibility and this feeling like I couldn't possibly exist within this world, even though I did. But stand up comedy has always been great because it's a it's a place where I can just do my own work and I don't have to rely on a a studio or a network necessarily, but it's definitely different. Well, I love it. And I, well, I don't like the racism, but I like that you go out there and you speak and you share laughter because I'm not going to lie. There's been time. I'm like, I'm a fan of yours because there's been moments where I felt alone and Mm -hmm. always alone my whole life. And I've been watching you on the TV and just like your humor, your laughter. I would be like high school watch or little outside of high school, but watching Drop Dead Diva and all these shows oh, that you were on. Right. And just you brought encouragement to me and like you didn't you made me feel like I wasn't alone. Oh, thank and you. And so glad. just like thank you for that and thank, thank you for you. all that you do because I think that when you're in this industry, sometimes you don't realize how many people you touch and how many people you reach. Right. I just want to give you like kudos for that because like you touched my heart and you know, I know so many people out there. I'm so glad. Thank you. I mean, that's the, 
That's the great reward of being a comedian is that you can really, I think, lighten the load for people, which is something that I always really appreciate. And I always go back to comedy because I think it's a really healing, healing kind of element to people's lives. Now, thinking about true crime, is there a, mm-hmm. is there a, cause I often will make massive light of my situation on a, on a daily basis. And people are like, Oh, you know, you can take a piss out of yourself. That's great. But I think it's, but I, you know, and Tara and I talk about this a lot, like with people, we're, you know, some people might be offended by it. Like, Oh, you're making a joke. Well, yeah, because what is the other, we can either laugh about it or what is the other, we can be depressed. We can, you know, do engage in self-harm. We can harm others or we can laugh about it and move on. And I think that that that's something that I think is so unique to the person that's involved in the trauma, because a lot of people, I think, want to put that on people like, oh, my reaction is what you should be doing. <laughs> my reaction, mm-hmm. you should be doing what I want to react to. Yeah. Yeah. And not make me feel uncomfortable. And I feel like you have probably been doing that for the better part of four decades. Well, having a sense of humor is really having a way to cope. You know, yeah. when if you look at what a laugh is, it is a an unexpected intake of breath, which is breath is life. It's like an in, an kind of insurance for the next moment of love, living. So, if you unexpectedly breathe, you're like unexpectedly welcoming in the next moment of life. And so that's, I think, what stand-up comedy is always based on. It's like, let's make a bunch of people unexpectedly breathe, which will make them unexpectedly live for the next hour. And and that's really, you know, the the promise of laughter. And and where where do we need that the most? I think in situations of trauma, in great sadness, in great grief, we need some sense of lightness around that. So I feel like laughter and true crime are are good together because it's like we survived it so we can not necessarily laugh it's not about laughing at what happened but it's laughing because we survived it my mother used to always say famous last words she would always say you know they use that as an expression right and she literally the night that she was killed she said to her best friend she said oh he just showed up with his mother so i guess he can't kill me tonight uh, uh-huh. And I tell people that story because uh-huh. when they when they come to me, they're just like, "Oh, how can you say this?" I'm like, "My mother had the most sardonic sense of humor out of anyone yeah. I knew." Yeah, she would find yeah. she would because she always says famous last words. She would find that hilarious. I mean, as morbid <laughs> as it is, that she was murdered the night that she said, "Oh, he can't kill, possibly kill me now." He showed up with his mother. Mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. and he did, and mm-hmm. it's just it's like, of course, and I and I think about that just all the time mm-hmm. which leads me into you know you had well i mean i guess maybe do you feel like you had a close call with what had happened you know you talked about on the first degree which oh yeah Tara and i were discussing with jj paulson right right well that was like really like that was that was really nuts so jj paulson was a he was a writer on the television show that i my first tv show in 1994 all american girl and so I always really liked him. And he, 
he he was so mean about it. he's like oh she's crazy she's the craziest girl you never want to be with she's super crazy and like he like he ended up murdering his wife and then leaving her in the closet for a month until she had mummified and the way that he was found was because he he abandoned their child who was an infant in the crib for a days and they found the baby like crying and he had like walked like miles away so i mean not only had he murdered the mother of his child he had abandoned her in the in the closet and then uh, left the baby and then went to jail for actually not that long he's out yeah i was gonna say um, he's out right he's out but and he says i'm crazy so, bitch, I'm sorry. Like that's, that's really But he was an alcoholic, right? I mean, I think you, was, you guys it's He was an alcoholic. He was I don't even know what was going on with him. But he and I didn't have a like a real sort of relationship. I just liked him. I was attracted to him, which is part of my problem. Like I'm attracted like I The artful dodger. I I love the artful dodger. I love the the criminal wearing a too big of a jacket, you know, like I, there's something about me that is attracted to the dark side of humanity, which I think is to my great detriment because so many relationships that I've been in have been yeah. really on that side. Like, you know, it, it's definitely a, a problem. And it's something that I come to understand now is it's me. I'm, I'm the, I'm the problem. And so I have to really look to, you know, my motives whenever getting into relationship, which I think maybe now I sort of don't think that it's, it's appropriate. I, I don't know. I, I haven't had the desire or in, impetus to kind of go out there and do it again. I'm kind of like, I might be done. I don't know. There might was be a done place. with the Artful Dodgers, or might be done, or might be done with relationships in general. I, th I think I might be done with relationships in general. Okay, because there's a there's a feeling of like, mm, I don't know if I want to do this anymore. Like, and I've tried so much, and I'm I'm just really like, I don't think so. I don't think that's right. Well, huh. there was a place where I got to that too, and mm -hmm. then I was like, I'm done dating. I'm done with the apps. The one person that I'm into doesn't like me back, so I'm just going to work. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and I'm just going to do me. And mm -hmm. then it was so crazy. Like, because I was in my own energy, that person came into fruition. And literally everything I ever manifested in someone, this person has. Like, if I manifested mm -hmm. five jobs in a person, this person has all five. <laughs> yeah, that's great. That's wonderful. So Thank you. But I mean, like in those moments where you like give up, though, I feel those are the moments where things actually change and things actually yeah. do go your way. I think so. I mean, I think it's really about like finding a relationship with ourselves, yeah. which I think is really profound. And so that's kind of what I'm learning now. And I have many cats and I have my beautiful dog and I have, you know, such a full life. I love that. And you have Sphinx cats, right? I have two Sphinx cats. One is deaf and she's learning sign language. So we communicate through light. If I need something from her, I'll turn the lights on off and on really fast. And she'll like, you know, know what to do. And 
incredible. We have a great, great connection. Today I needed her to sit still so I could cut her nails and she was very obliging. But it's it's a very like, a, you know, and I have a Lykoi also who's a well, werewolf cat. Oh, okay. He's beautiful. Oh, those and, are kind of rare. Yeah, he's a rare boy. He's very special. And uh, he he's my beautiful son. And so then I have the animals. I have a huge stand-up comedy career. I have a movie and television career. I also produce. So there's a lot of different things that I really put myself into. And then I have a very strong meditation practice. And I'm, you know, really into being sober and being active in that. So there's a lot of good things that I'm finally doing that I haven't been able to really do. So I'm really glad for that. I love that. And I love that we're like, well, I'm California sober, but like we're sober here too. Yeah, I just did two years a month ago. Oh, wow. That's great. Amazing. It's crazy. And I don't know if you feel comfortable with keeping this in there, but one of the main reasons why I actually got sober is because Billy Jensen. Oh, yeah, yeah. Um, Billy Jensen, he like groped me and he tried to... uh, kiss me and it was really inappropriate mm-hmm. <clears throat> I wasn't asking for anything from him mm-hmm. but um, he literally stopped drinking and I told him he needed to go to rehab because mm-hmm. he grabbed a girl by the vagina at a work party and he's been really inappropriate with a lot of survivors mm-hmm And Mm -hmm. so I got sober, honestly, because I don't want to keep putting myself back into those positions where I get grabbed and I'm kind of aloof to the situation. Well, it's like for me, sobriety was really important because it was like I kept putting myself in these difficult situations. Also, just to numb myself from abuse that was happening, you know, and not knowing how to cope with any kind of sexual anything because I was such a grew up in such a culture of abuse that sex was always an uncomfortable thing. So anything like that, I would just rather be numb to. So I'm not willing to do that anymore. Yeah. Like same with me. I'm just like alcohol just contributes to these situations sometimes, unfortunately. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And I think that everyone should feel safe. But unfortunately, Mm -hmm. you got to do what's best for you in that moment. Absolutely. Absolutely. And I think it's just if you think about like uh, just how much like you miss. I miss so much when I'm not sober. Like I just miss so much of life that I don't want to I don't want to miss it anymore. So I want to be there for it. Yeah. And it's like the awareness of the real and just like. I know you meditate. So I'm like, I feel like I can go to different dimensions if mm-hmm. I'm just sober. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I, I've been like drunk and high so much of my life that being sober now <laughs> is like being high. Yeah. <laughs> it's like, yeah, I agree. I agree. Yeah. Yeah. It's Absolutely. like the different, the different experience. So I, I really I love it. I love it, too. Yes. Sober power. Yeah. <laughs> and, and California sober. So like if you like. I don't think of weed as a drug. I think of it more as like kind of, it's sort of like a supplement. <laughs> it's, it's like a, Sure, 100%. It's an antioxidant. Although I can't do it because I just, I'm so, I, I've smoked weed so much since I was a child that okay. it doesn't do anything. 
<laughs> so I have to like do dabs. I have to do the the dabs if I I, I can't I can't do anything. I, it doesn't doesn't affect me unless it's like very heavy potent. I can't do it. Like even if I you would, take breaks. Oh, even if I take breaks. Really? Okay, because I will take breaks and then I'll come back and I'll be like, whoa, whoa. <laughs> yeah. Or like the gravity bong. Have you ever tried the oh. gravity Oh, yeah. Those are so... Those I knew are the guy that made those, so the gravity painful. vortex ones. Yeah, I used to have one. It was It's painful. Yeah. Because yeah. it really shoves the smoke down into your lungs, but it still wouldn't get me high. Oh. I would just get a sore throat. Oh. <laughs> Well, yeah, you you've wow. messed the smoke for a long time, then. <laughs> yeah, I I mean, it just to me, it's sort of like it doesn't really do what it's supposed to. But I yeah. appreciate it. But it's kind of like I I do I I wish that I could because I think I, I think it's really interesting. I think it's really fun. Yeah. Well, I do it more so to shut off because. Yeah. I, I'm a little bit psychic where mm-hmm. I'll just pick up things from people and then I'll tell them, like, you need to leave your boyfriend. He's, yeah. he's messing with your heart chakra. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. And I'm, I'm just that person, though. So I'm like, oh, I need to smoke a little bit so I don't tell everybody what they need right now in their life. Well, yeah, I mean, it's good to have that little bit of off thing. So, yeah, what I I use meditation for that, for sure. Uh, yeah. Um, and I use like just sitting with my animals and taking care of yeah. them for that and long walks with my dog for that. So that, that helps. I love that. Yeah. I can, sit, I can actually sit here. I can just sit and we, ask you questions all day. But <laughs> Yeah, we could sit and ask you questions all day and stuff. But I feel like... Just everything that you shared is so amazing and so helpful to anyone listening to this podcast, because I know there's a lot of survivors out there. And I feel like we kind of touched base on like, you know, the multi-trauma verse and then Mm -hmm. child molestation. We talked on racism and we talked on toxic relationships. And it's really crazy that there's so many multiple traumas, you know, when you experience a trauma when you're younger. So I just want to thank you for sharing your stories, your traumas, just being vulnerable with us. It's so important because I know a lot of people are going to listen to this mm. and are even going to be fans of yours too. Yeah, yeah. And it's also going to help the other stories be heard yeah. as well. Yeah, so I mean, I think it's really important to like focus on the fact that so many of us are survivors and they don't even acknowledge it. Like we don't even acknowledge it within ourselves and it's time to celebrate the fact that we survived. Yes. And what would you want to share? Anything else you'd like to share with us? That it's a lifelong journey and that we don't have to allow our trauma to define us, that our trauma is just another, we don't have to personalize it either. Like it didn't happen because with something wrong with us or that we're bad people. These are the things that happens and to not personalize it to the point of making it something that is our fault, but also to know that it doesn't have to be everything that we are, but we can come back and be healed and be stronger for it. That's amazing. Yeah. Margaret, could you, do you have a good story that you could indulge us with when you first came to Hollywood? 
when I first came to Hollywood, uh, I remember uh, one of the things that uh, I, I had, I met with an agent who had uh, repped another very famous person that I knew who was like setting me up with him. And so I went and he, he told me, uh, you know, you really should get out of show business because there's never going to be a situation where an Asian person is going to be successful. And I said, okay. And then a, a couple of years later, he was actually repping one of the guest actors on my television show. And it was like, he was like coming in and he was so scared to say hi to me. And then I said hi to him and it was really like this gratifying thing. So, you know, don't let anybody take away, uh, you know, your dreams of, of doing what you want to do. Nobody really knows what's going to happen. Everything is possible. That's amazing. And those I are, love yeah. that. Those are, are wise words. Face. <laughs> that, felt so, that had to have felt so good just to be like, hmm, how's that working out oh, for hey. everybody? Yeah. Oh, hey. <laughs> How you doing? This is, it's so this funny. This is my show. Welcome yeah. to the set. This is my show. And I would have been like, thank you for coming. Can you get me a coffee? <laughs> and he was so embarrassed. And he was like, yeah, I'm the one that told Margaret Cho she wasn't going to be able to do anything. Like, he always introduces himself as that, which is really great. So I love That's that. That's great. Yeah. I love that. Lucia. <laughs> I see little Lucia. She knows when everything is like winding down because that means she gets to go out. Oh. oh so whenever so my voice sad. starts to go, so thank you. And then, it, oh, there's your doggy. <laughs> Hi, baby. This is Hi. Dixon. Like, Hi. The Walking Dead. Yes. <laughs> Amazing. Hi, baby. Oh, there's my mom, Hi, by the way. Baby. Wow. Hi. That's beautiful. My beautiful mother. Yeah. So beautiful. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for joining us. Wonderful. Where can we find you on social media, everything, and your podcast as well? The social medias. The Twitter at Margaret Cho, Margaret underscore Cho on Instagram, the Margaret Cho on TikTok. My podcast is called Mortal Minorities, and it's also called the Margaret Cho, and it can be found wherever podcasts are are found. That's and I'm Mar oh, MargaretCho.com. I love it. We're all part of a club that we really don't want to be part of, but we are all mm -hmm. part of the survivor squad so margaret cho thank you so much for being a part of the program today well thank you so much for joining us and i just am so happy to hear your story and connect with you i'm so excited to meet you both and thank you so tara you fangirled a little bit didn't you <laughs> what are you talking about collier <laughs> <laughs> i don't know what you're talking about i didn't fangirl whatsoever even though i said it at the beginning of this episode <laughs> But I felt like, um, I, you know, I'm sure there will be people that we'll have on the program that I'll be, you know, very, very over the moon with as well. I feel like maybe some NFL players or some basketball players. Basketball those are players. people that you would definitely, basketball players. Yeah. Yeah. Get me a LeBron James and I will be speechless. But I feel that's the thing that it's the core of every artist is that you utilize your trauma and what you've been through in your life for the benefit of others. And that becomes your art. That you, that you express to the world. And it's incredible to be able to do that. Yes, just using your natural traumatic gifts. Yes, natural traumatic <laughs> gifts. We will have big shout out again to Margaret Cho for being on the program. Shout out to Ken Phillips, her publicist, for hooking us up with her. And we will have links to all of Margaret's, as if you need links to find her. But we will have links to all of Margaret's stuff in the show notes of today's episode. 
Yes. And thank you guys so much for listening. I'm Tara Newell. And I'm Collier Landry. And this is The Survivor Squad. We'll see you guys. The Survivor Squad podcast is made possible by support from listeners just like you. Please subscribe via Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts from. And please consider supporting this program by visiting our Patreon page at patreon.com forward slash Survivor Squad.